Welcome to the Building Laborers Podcast. This podcast exists to mobilize and equip the saints to labor for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We trust and pray that the following content will encourage you to love Jesus and to labor for His glory. All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 15. Okay, and if you open up to this passage and you look at it and you go, I know this story. What in the heck does this have to do with fighting sin? Okay, you're in the right place. That's how you know you found the right text. And we're going to be actually looking at tonight the story of the prodigal son. Okay, it's a very popular passage. I would be willing to bet that the vast majority of you in this room have heard the prodigal son multiple times. Okay, but my goal tonight is to kind of not put a fresh twist on it. Scripture only means one thing, but to kind of look at it from the perspective of the outside looking in, looking at the hearts of the younger and the older brother, seeing how they handled their sin and how they resolved their issues or didn't resolve their issues with their father. And so we're going to look at this from the perspective of fighting sin. The reason I picked this passage, if I'm just honest with you guys, yesterday I had a completely different talk written. A completely different talk, completely different passage. But if you know, yesterday was Father's Day. Okay, so yesterday was Father's Day. I've had the privilege of being a father now for two Father's Days. Okay, it's sick. It's like a second birthday. Okay, and, but I love it. But the reason I love it is because of my son. Right? I have my son, and there's just, it's hard to explain, but there's, there's nothing I wouldn't do for my son. I love him unconditionally. It doesn't matter what he does. It doesn't matter what he doesn't do. Actually, right now he does more... Uh, to make our lives harder than he does to really contribute to our lives, okay? But we love him anyway because he's my son. But it did make me start thinking about one of the biggest issues in America today, and that is the issue of fatherlessness, homes without fathers. And so yesterday I was casually looking at some statistics, and this one stood out to me. 24.7 million children in the U.S. grow up without their biological father in the home. 24.7 million kids grow up without their father in the home. That's one in every three, okay? So for me, that blows my mind. I actually grew up most of my life without my father in my home, but I look at my son and I'm like, there's just nothing. There's nothing that could possibly make me leave you, make me abandon ship, abandon my wife, abandon you, and have you not be a part of my my life because I love you so much. But the reality is, that's not how people decide to just leave their families. It doesn't just go from, oh, like one day I'm just loving my family, there's no issues, I would never leave, and then tomorrow I wake up and I'm like, I'm gone. Like, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. That's not how it works. Usually what happens is small sin, bitterness, or anger, or jealousy, or something like that just starts to build up. And instead of dealing with it, instead of fighting back against that sin, you just let it dwell and you let it build, and you let it build, and you let it build, and it becomes so tragic to a point that fathers would literally leave their homes to the point where 24.7 million kids live without the biological father in their home. I would imagine that that's some of you in this room as well, not just me. Right? That's heartbreaking. That is the result of sin. That's what happens when we do not deal business with sin, and we just think it's no big deal, and we don't do anything about it. But thankfully, in Christ, we can fight our sin. In Christ, we actually can have victory over our sin. I praise God for Christ because I know that Oliver will grow up with a father. Not because I'm special, not because I can't or maybe even wouldn't blow it, but because my hope is fixed firmly in Christ. 
my, my love and my allegiance is to Christ first and foremost. And so I know he's going to grow up with a father. But the world, a lot of the people in the world doesn't. So tonight, what we want to look at is how do we fight sin? What is at the heart of sin? And what are we going to do about it? And so like I said, we're in Luke 15, starting in verse 11. It says this, And he, being Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of your property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Okay, so here's my first point on your outline. Uh, I don't know what you want to call these. It's not really like steps or anything like that. There's not like a five step. If you do this, you're going to fight sin. This is more just kind of five things that need to be in place in your life to set you up well to fight sin. Okay. And the first one is this. Admit why we sin. Admit why we sin. So we get this picture of this dad and his two sons. And the younger son goes up to his dad and says, Dad, give me the inheritance. I'm going to peace out. Okay? An inheritance, though, is only given usually when the parent dies. Right? So when a parent dies, they, they have an inheritance that they pass off to their children. Especially in biblical times, this would have been really offensive. For a son to come up to his father and say, hey, give me my inheritance before you're actually dead would have been like his younger son walked up to his dad and said, you're dead to me. I don't want anything to do with it. The only reason I would need my inheritance is because I don't ever plan on seeing you again. That's what the younger brother is saying to his father. And he's like, hey, you're dead to me. So go ahead and just give me your money. Give me my share of the inheritance. And for some reason... Don't know why the dad gives it to him, okay? And then it says he goes out and spends it on reckless living. We'll find out later in our text some of the things that he spends money on were prostitutes, right? It kind of gives us at least an idea of what, he, what it means by reckless living. He went out and just lived for sin. He's like, what could possibly give me pleasure? And I'm just going to go spend all of my money doing that. So he goes out and he looks for all of this sin in his life. And the reason I think he does it, okay, is because he does not believe that being with his father can provide the same level of satisfaction that whatever is out there. Whatever's out there, I got to go get that. And the reason I think that is because if he believed that his father could offer him that or being with his father could offer him that, he wouldn't have left. Right? So he believed that whatever is out there has got to be better than what my father has. At the end of the day, why did the son choose to do this? It's because it was his heart's desire. In his heart, he desired the things of this world. He desired to sleep with women. He desired probably, you know, he probably gambled his money. He, he lived recklessly. And he did that because it was his heart's desire. Look at James 4.1 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Okay, I could spend a whole talk going over just James 4, but I'm going to summarize a whole talk in a couple sentences, okay? It's very simple. We learn it a lot in biblical counseling. Why do we do what we do? Why do we do the good choices and the bad choices? Why do we do what we do? 
At the end of the day, we do what we do because we want what we want. We do what we do because we want what we want. It says, is, not, is, this, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That word passions could also be translated desires or lust. Your desires. We want what we want, and that's why we do things. Right, I know that sounds simple, but it's true. The only reason you do anything is because you want to, unless you're forced to do it, right? But when you have a free choice, you don't choose to do the thing that you don't want to do in that moment. In that moment, you're choosing it because you want it. It's in your heart. And then the next question is, well, why do we want what we want? Why do sometimes we want sin? And some do, why sometimes why do we want to choose Christ? We want what we want because we believe what we believe. Okay? We want what we want because we believe what we believe. Here's what I mean by this. When we choose sin, we are believing that that sin can offer me something that God can't. I'm going to say that again. When we sin, we are believing in that moment that that sin offers me something that God can't. Why? Because if we believe God could offer whatever I'm searching for from that sin, whether it's pleasure, whether it's comfort, whether it's control or peace or whatever it is, satisfaction, joy, if I really believed in that moment that God could give that to me, I wouldn't choose my sin. So ultimately what we believe in the moment when we're sinning is a lie. We're believing a lie that's not true. And that's what we see here with the prodigal son. He bought the lie that out there spending his money on the things of the world was better than being in the comfort and security of his father's home. So he goes out because he wants what he wants and he believes the lie that, he, that the sin will offer him what he's looking for. And so the first kind of, I don't, again, I don't know what you want to call it, the first point for tonight is that we need to admit why we sin if we want to have real victory over our sin. Here's what I mean by that. Okay? I phrase that very intentionally. Why we sin. We got to get to the root. We got to get to our heart. We got to be like, why did I do that? If we just try to cut it off at the surface level, I'm just going to try to stop doing that. It's probably going to come back up. But if we can get to the root, if we can get to our heart's idol, what am I really wanting in this moment? What am I believing that God can't give me so I'm choosing this sin instead? If we can get to that, then we have a chance of getting rid of it, uprooting it, and then changing it and replacing it with what's true, which we're going to cover in a second. So we got to get to it, and then we have to own it. We have to own, man, I just, because it, it makes it sound worse, right? It's like, I just wanted this because I really believed that this sin would give me more pleasure than being with God. That sounds pretty bad, but the reality is it is that bad. That's what sin is, right? And so we have to admit it. We have to call it what it is, acknowledge what our sin is. Okay, so that's the first one. Here's the second one. We need to realize the result of sin. Realize the result of sin. Pick up in our text in verse 14. And when, he, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Okay, so check this out. He goes, he takes all of his inheritance. Okay, we, we know that the dad is wealthy. Okay, he has uh, livestock, he has a lot of property, he has tons of money. He gets his inheritance from his dad, and the Bible says he spent every penny, all of it, all of it on reckless living. It's all gone. 
to the point where he needs money. He needs work. And so he gets hired to work with these pigs. And he's so hungry that he looks at the pig slop and thinks, man, that looks good. Like, if I could just have some of that, that would be awesome. Okay, I don't know about you guys, but I've been pretty hungry at some points in my life, okay? I've never once been so hungry that I looked at pig slop and was like, man, that looks good, right? Never had, imagine how hungry you would have to be to look at that band, if only if I can get some of that pig slop. He took this inheritance, he spent it all, and what was he left with? Absolutely nothing. He was searching for something. He was searching for joy, satisfaction, pleasure, comfort. Who knows what he was looking for, but he clearly didn't find it because he spent all of his money trying to find it, had nothing else, and became so hungry that he longed for pig slop. What is the result of our sin? What's, what's the end game? Where, is, where does sin take us? It takes us to emptiness and ruin. It takes us to emptiness and ruin. What sin has to offer you is nothing. It, it's a lie. It promises you joy, peace, happiness, comfort, satisfaction, but it's lying to you and it leaves you empty and ruined. Check out this verse with me. Jeremiah 2.13 for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Okay, we're going to cover the fountain of living water part in my next point. Okay, but God basically looks at the people of Israel and says this, you've done two things wrong. First thing, you've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Okay, we're going to cover that in a second. But the other thing that you've done is that you've hewed out cisterns for yourself. If you guys don't know what a cistern is, okay, it's basically this man-made hole. Okay, I was looking them up on the internet. They're actually way bigger than I thought they were. It's like the size of this room, imagine. And you dig this hole, and the point is to collect rainwater so that way you could drink, right? But here's the problem with that. Yes, it collects rainwater, but it's also just out in the open. So it's also collecting bugs and dead animals, and debris, and mud, and sticks, and leaves, and all of these things are also going into this cistern. So yes, there's water in there, and yes, the people drank from it, but it was kind of tainted water, right? It definitely wasn't clean water. And not only does God say that we hew out cisterns for ourselves, meaning that we, instead of going to God for satisfaction, instead of going to God for joy, we try to find it ourselves. We try to look for it in the world. We try to fill ourselves up with sin to try to satisfy the longings of our heart. But not only is it compared to a cistern, a nasty cistern, it says it's broken, meaning it leaks. Meaning that even at the end of the day, yeah, that water can sustain you for a little bit, but eventually it's going to run dry and it's going to leave you empty and longing for more. That's what God says we have done wrong is we have hewed out cisterns for ourselves and it leaves us empty. Our sin leaves us empty. I know you guys know what I'm talking about. Before I was a Christian specifically, and I would go out and I would party and I would wake up the next morning. If I was honest with myself, I wouldn't have said this at the time to anybody, but now I looking back, I was thinking to myself, man, is this really it? Like, is this really all that life has to offer me? Like, I feel so empty. Like, I, again, I wouldn't have maybe phrased it like that, but that's what I felt. I felt, I was, why, this is what the world says will make me happy. Party, have a lot of friends, right? get with a lot of girls, make a lot of money, like be popular on campus, I'll be happy. 
It's what the world says, but yet I was empty. And the reason we're empty is because sin was not meant or designed to satisfy us. Only God is. God is the one who created us. God is the one who ordained what our purpose in life is. And when we try to fill our life with sin, of course it leaves us empty. That's not what we're designed for. That's not how we're designed to be satisfied. We're designed to be satisfied in Christ, in Christ alone, but sin leaves us empty. And not only does our sin leave us empty and unsatisfied, but our sin also grieves God. Check out Genesis 5 through 6 with me. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. This is right before the flood, okay? This is right before the flood. And God looked at the people and what he saw in their hearts was, man, these people are sinful, right? And so are we. And it says that their sin grieved the Lord. Psalm 78:40. How often they, being Israel, rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Israel, God's chosen people, God constantly proved that he was faithful to them, and yet they continued to disobey, they continued to rebel, they continued to go their own way, and it grieved the Lord. Ephesians 4:30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Yes. We need to realize that our sin does lead us to emptiness and ruin. But at the end of the day, our main motivation of why we should want to fight our sin is because it grieves God. The one who loves us that we're about to see so ridiculously as we're about to see loves us and extends us grace. It grieves him when we sin. Just as when a father, I imagine when Oliver grows up and he makes not some great decisions, right? My love for him is not going to change, but it, it probably will grieve me, right? It'll make me sad. It'll make me hurt that he didn't go the way that I directed him to go, and then he suffered the consequences, right? We grieve the Lord when we sin. That should be our main motivation for why we want to fight sin in the first place, okay? So we need to realize the result of sin. We need to think when we sin, where, is, where would this take me, right? And then third, we need to repent and embrace the Father's love. Repent and embrace the Father's love. Pick up with me in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Okay, we're going to stop there just for a second. So it says that he came to himself. Uh, just grab it. Can someone grab a chair for her, please? We're all out. A guy, maybe grab a chair real quick. Thank you, sir. So it says in verse 17 that the younger son came to himself, meaning this. He woke up, okay? He realized what the heck is going on here. Right? Like I was with my father, everything was great, I squandered all of his money, and now all of a sudden I look at pig slop and I'm like, man, that looks good. Like what is going on here? So he wakes up and he realizes that he sinned. Right? He realized that he sinned against God and he sinned against his father. And so what he does is he kind of prepares this like pitch. Okay, I don't know if any of you have ever been in trouble before. Okay, probably not as bad as I was when I was in high school, but I remember one night when I did something I wasn't supposed to, and I knew I got caught, 
okay? I did not want to go home, okay? I did not want to go home, and I prepared a pitch of, to try to get out of it or to try to lessen the punishment. You guys know what I'm talking about, okay? That's essentially what he's doing here. He's like practicing, what am I going to say to my dad when I get home because I blew it, right? What am I going to say? He practices this pitch, and then check this out, verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So his son, he's probably covered in, you know, pig slop, disgusting, lost all of his money, probably scared to go home, is walking home to his father. And it says when he was a long way off, his father saw him, ran to him, and embraced him. Okay, there's a couple of things to point out here. The first one is this. The text doesn't say this, but if he saw him from a long way off, it kind of implies that he was looking, right? That he was waiting for his son to come home. Pastor Gary kind of alluded to this on Sunday with Hosea, making this kind of a parallel connection to Hosea, that God probably, or that he probably is trying to allude here, that he was waiting for his son to come home. But then he says he ran to him, okay? This is why uh, OIA is a really good tool, because you would miss something like this. To us, it's like no big deal. Like, I, you know, I would run to my son, no big deal. But back then, that is not what older, wealthy men did, okay? They were lazy, right? That's why they had money. It's like, I don't, they didn't run. That would have actually been considered disgraceful for an older, wealthy, land-owning man to run. But he runs to his son. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if it's disgraceful. He doesn't care what people think. His son is home and he loves him. So he runs to him and embraces him. And then check this out. This is one of my favorite parts. There's a couple favorite parts. You'll see it here in a second. But this is one of them, okay? When he says in verse uh, 21, the son starts giving his pitch. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then it says, but the father said to his servants. The father didn't even hear him. He, he just cut him off. He had more to the speech, right? Like, he's like, just hire me as a servant. The father's like, stop talking, all right? Like, just stop talking. Servants, go ahead and kill the calf, bring in the robe, okay? So the best robe in our house, bring in the ring to put on his finger. The ring probably would have been the family ring. Like, only members of the family get to wear it. So the son was coming home thinking he was just going to get hired as a servant. No way. My dad will take me back as his son. But his father puts on the robe, puts on the ring, puts sandals on his feet, and then he kills the fattened calf. Okay? Again, to us, that doesn't mean anything because there's like four McDonald's like down the street. Okay? There's like three within a mile of my house. Okay? But back then, you didn't just kill cows willy-nilly, and especially not the fat one. Okay? The fat one was saved for special occasions. It was saved for parties. It was saved for celebrations. And the father said, go get the fattened calf. We are throwing a banger, okay? My son is home, right? I imagine that's what he said, all right? My son is home. Pull out all of the stops. Think about that for a second. The son looked 
at his dad in the face and essentially said, you're dead to me. I'm never going to see you again. And he comes home, and before he can even get out his whole speech, the father is so enthralled that his son is home that he pulls out and throws this huge party because of how much he loves him and is grateful that he's home. What an amazing, amazing picture here, okay? But the reality is this. This is not just a story. Jesus is telling this to paint us a picture between what the Father is like and when His children repent. When we repent from our sin and come back to the Lord, it gives Him joy. It pleases the Lord. Why? Because the Bible calls us, if we are His children, His children. And just as if Oliver was to ever run away one day, and I pray that that would never happen, and he would come home, I just can't imagine the joy that I would have just because he came home. It's like, would I have handled it like this, Dad? Probably not. Okay, we're probably not throwing a party, right? But I'd be so happy that my son is home and he's safe because I love him. And God looks at us when we repent. And he says, welcome home. Even though you've sinned, even though you might be in this room tonight being like, man, Aaron, if only you knew the sin that I'm secretly dealing with right now. And the reality is I know that some of you probably are. The Father welcomes you home. He wants you to come home. He loves you. He says, repent and come home. And I will embrace you with open arms. Okay? So how does this help us fight sin? Look at John 4, 13 through 14. Jesus said to her, this is the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Okay, so this is like the parallel passage to the Jeremiah 2.13 one in the New Testament. And Jesus says, I am the fountain of living water. Okay, God offers us what sin tries to but can't deliver on. God offers us satisfaction and he can deliver God offers us joy and He delivers. God offers us peace and hope and comfort and security and pleasure. He offers us all of the things that we try to so often look for from sin, but He actually fulfills it because He's the fountain of living water. And He says, you will never be thirsty again. That stuff, it runs dry. Sin runs dry and leaves you empty and ruined. He's saying, I don't. I don't run dry. If you abide in me, you will always be satisfied. That's not saying that we will always feel satisfied or always feel joy or always feel peace as a believer. But the reality is that's who he is. And as we keep coming back to him, he keeps refilling us. But when we keep going back to sin, it does the opposite. It actually drains us. It actually leads us to misery and consequences in our life and it displeases the Lord. Everything that you are searching for in life Okay, and I'm not talking superficially here, all right? I'm not talking about like, oh, I'm searching for an Xbox, okay? Like maybe you are, so am I, okay? But there's something deeper than that, right? That's why we got to get to the root. Why do you want the Xbox? Well, because it's a lot of fun. It's okay, well, why do you care about having fun? It's like, well, because I want to I live a pleasurable life at the end of the day. Like I want to be happy, right? And that makes me happy, and so I want this Xbox. At the heart of that, Jesus can give us everything that our hearts desires. Everything. Comfort, peace, joy, satisfaction, all of those things, pleasure that we look for from the world is actually found not in sin, but in Christ. Psalm 16, 11, 
you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Sin can only provide you temporary happiness. Sin can only provide you temporary pleasure, but it will never last and it will always fade away. But God gives us real, lasting, authentic joy and pleasure in Him. I use this analogy all the time, okay? If that, you guys ever seen that toy where kids, there's all those shapes, right? And they have to match the shape and then they push it through, okay? What it's like when we live as sin is we're trying to take the circle one and shove it through the triangle hole, okay? It just doesn't work, right? No matter how hard we try, it's not going in. But that's what we're doing when we're playing with sin. We think it's going to satisfy us, but it was never meant to, so it can't. But if we fill our lives with Christ, the fountain of living water, it fits and it actually satisfies our longing souls in Him. John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that I have a life, and, er, that I came, being Jesus, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Okay? Sin wants to trick you. That's just at the end of the day. Satan is called the father of deceit. Okay? Sin wants to trick you. Here's what sin wants to do in your life. Kill, steal, and destroy it. That's it. So that's all, that's sin's end game is to kill, steal, and destroy your life. But Jesus came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Find life in Christ, the fountain of living water. Because real victory over sin, okay? Real victory, lasting victory over sin comes when we start to believe that God is the true source of satisfaction, not sin. Because as long as we don't believe that, we're always going to go back to our sin. If we, if we even believe it's on par, we're always going to go back to our sin. But until, until we start to believe that sin is a lie and that God's word is true and that he's the source of satisfaction, that's when we start to have real victory over our sin. So kind of practically with that, what we need to do kind of to fill the point is we need to repent. We need to turn away. When we realize that we've sinned, we need to stop it in a sense. And we need to turn Repent means to turn. We covered this in the first week. And we need to start walking towards Jesus. We need to embrace the Father's love, His grace that's ridiculous. This is crazy, this story of the prodigal son, that this father would do this for his son. But God loves us so much that He sent Christ to die on our behalf. And when we repent, He embraces us with open arms and we accept His free gift of mercy and His grace. And 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But we have to be humble, which leads me to my fourth point. Acknowledge that pride is the primary obstacle in fighting sin. Pick up in verse 25 with me. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Okay, let's stop right there. This is my other favorite part of this passage. Okay, his son is out in the field, okay, and he heard dancing. I don't know about you guys, I see dancing, okay? I don't know the last time I heard dancing, right? And it says he was out in the field. Imagine, this is why I use the word banger. Imagine how much of a banger you would have to throw to hear dancing from out in the field, okay? I mean, God is pulling, or God, this father, who's the God in the parable, okay? The father is pulling out all the stops for this party. He hears me dancing and music. Pick up in verse 26. 
And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. So the older son is mad. And the reason he's mad is because of pride. The reason he's mad is because he looks at his younger brother and he thinks, I deserve the party. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't leave. He thinks, I deserve the party, so my brother doesn't. Okay? What he is realizing, and he kind of lists it out, is he says, Father, look at all the things I did for you. Look at this list of things I've done for you. I deserve this party. And it kind of gives the connotation, it's not really about that his younger brother got the party, it's that he thinks he deserves the party, right? Like, look at all the things I've done. Look how I've never disobeyed you. You've never given me a young calf for my friends. Like, what a weird, imagine go home to your parents for your birthday later, like next year, and be like, what do you want for your birthday, Austin? A young calf. That'd be great. Um, imagine what they do. I mean, some of you probably, that might be a re reality if you live on like a farm, um, but... <laughs> But the older son believed he deserved the party. And he believed he deserved it based upon what he had done in his faithfulness to uh, working for his father. But what's interesting is the father comes to him and he says, Son, all that I have is yours. You're welcome to come to the party. It's always been yours. What was keeping the older brother out of the party was his pride. He was invited. He was allowed to come. The party could have been just as well for him as it was for his younger son, he, or for the younger brother, because he's a son of this dad. But what kept him out was his pride. And I believe, and some commentators believe, that the prodigal son is actually mistitled. That this, that this uh, parable is actually not primarily about the younger brother, it's about the older brother. And the reason I think that, and some commentators think that, is because Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he's talking specifically, if you look at uh, the beginning of 15, uh, I already closed, no, I'll just look at it. At the beginning of 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then he goes on and tells these three parables. The Pharisees were mad. Like, how are you going to let these sinners into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus? They don't deserve it. Doesn't kind of sound like the older brother. Like, you don't deserve it. Like, I've been here the whole time, right? Like, I, I've been trying to do my best. Look at my resume. That was the Pharisees. So I think Jesus is actually primarily addressing the older son here. And that's why it's a whole point here. If we don't realize that pride is our biggest obstacle usually in fighting sin, we're going to have a hard time beating sin. And here's why. James 4, 6-8. through 8. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How in the world are we going to grow in fighting sin if God is opposed to us? We're not, right? And this is, by the way, you study it for yourself. This is in the context of believers, James 4, okay? It's not talking about unbelievers, it's talking about believers, 
right? God can be opposed to you if you're proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Think about this for a second. Imagine how much humility the younger brother needed to go home. I, the day that I was just described to you where I got caught by my dad and I knew I was going to get in trouble and then I was preparing my speech, I mean, like, it was like the worst feeling I've ever felt in my life going home because I knew I was in trouble. I knew he already knew and I walked into it. just took so long to go inside because I knew what was waiting for me. And all I did, you know, was like break curfew or something, right? This younger brother takes his father's inheritance, wishes he was dead, wastes it all, and then comes home. Wow, how much humility would that take? How much pride would you have to lay aside to admit, well, I have made the worst mistake of my life. I'm gonna go home though. If anyone can help me, it's gonna be my dad. And then the older brother was the exact opposite. He let his pride keep him out of the party, right? Our sin, the way we have victory over our sin is that we need to humble ourselves. We need to admit that we sin. We need to admit that it's bad that it grieves the Lord and we need to humbly come to the Lord not pridefully not with excuses not with oh God yes I sinned but blah yada 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 no God I've sinned against you and ultimately I sinned against you because in my heart I wanted something so badly that I chose to get it over you but God I come and I confess my sin to you and the Bible says that God will forgive you that he's rich in mercy that he will lavish ridiculous love and grace like the father did to the younger son in our story. The text goes on and says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I already said that. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What we need to do is we need to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to God. Essentially what that means is we need to, and God, I, I've, sin has left me empty and ruined. God, your way is right. I'm submitting my life to you. That's when we start having victory over sin. When we stop playing around with sin, realizing the, the, the negative consequences of it, we say, God, my life is yours. That's when we start to grow. And then it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. A.W. Tozer, a famous old dead guy, said this quote, every man is as close to God as he wants to be. Every man, just think about that for a second, every man or woman, is as close to God as they want to be. What is he saying? He's saying, James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If you feel distant to the Lord, and trust me, I've been there plenty of times as a Christian, okay? The issue isn't with God. God is the loving Father who is waiting for you to come home, to embrace you, to love you, to shower you with grace when you confess your sin and repent from your sin. But the reason we're distanced from the Lord is because we're as close to God as we want to be. We struggle to humble ourselves, to admit that we have sinned, to admit that we do need help, that we have messed up, and then to come back to the Lord for grace because that takes a lot of humility. But the good news is, that's all it takes. All it takes is for us to go home. All it takes is for us to repent of our sin and go back to our loving Father. And His Word tells us how He will respond. If I knew exactly how my dad was going to respond, when I got in trouble and it was that he was going to throw me a party, I would have gone home like that, you know? Like I wouldn't even thought about it, right? Okay. We know how God's going to respond when we humble ourselves, confess our sin and return to him. He's going to accept us with open arms. He's going to forgive us of our sin. He's going to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. 
And then it's our responsibility to stay there, stay in his home, abide in the gospel, plant your anchor there, stop going back to the sin that left you empty and ruined, and stay with your father where there's joy and peace and satisfaction. My last point is this, fall madly in love with Jesus Christ. How do we fight our sin? We fall madly in love with Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Your greatest weapon to fight sin is to be passionately in love with Jesus. Okay? That's your greatest weapon. It's not to say, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to try my hardest not to do fill-in-the-blank sin. Okay? Probably you'll end up doing it because you're thinking about it all day, right? Your greatest weapon is actually to fall in love with Christ, to be so in love and thankful for what he did for you on the cross that it consumes you, that that's all you can think about. That you, could, you can't even comprehend. I couldn't comprehend being the younger son in the story and coming home and this is how my dad responds, how, how loved he would feel, how accepted how he would feel, how forgiven he would feel. To remember that, to think about that in verse 2, says Jesus endured the cross for us. He despised the shame for us. He died in our place. We need to love Christ. Think about like a new couple that gets together, okay? They just, they just, they're enthralled with one another, okay? It's called the honeymoon phase. Like nothing else matters all of a sudden. It's like, oh, I used to love Xbox. Not anymore, right? No more Xbox, just hanging out with my girlfriend, right? Or you used to, we used to hang out with these people or you say, it's like, no, like we just, all my energy, all my focus, all my thoughts is on this new relationship, okay? But here's the thing. Eventually the honeymoon phase runs out, right? And you know why it runs out? Because the person you're dating is a sinner, okay? And you were putting a lot of, if we'd be honest, our hope and our joy and our longing for comfort and satisfaction and love into another person. And then eventually we realize, wait a second, this person's sinful and I'm sinful, right? So they can't actually satisfy the deep longing I have for those things. But the good news is Christ is perfect. The fountain never runs dry. So when we fall in love with Christ, it doesn't run out. He always is good. He's always there for us. He always will provide us with joy and comfort and satisfaction if we draw near to Him. So fall in love with Christ. He is the one that satisfies, not our sin. And then it says in verse 1 that we need to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Sometimes the thing that stops us from fighting our sin is that we're not willing to let go of it. That we kind of just, maybe we let go of it a little bit, but like we're not really... to really let go of it. And the, the imagery here is as if I'm about to run a 100 meter dash and then I slap on, you know, like a 20 pound weight vest, right? I would run much faster if I just took the thing off, right? And that's kind of what he's getting at here. We need to let go of our sin and go full steam ahead into our relationship with Jesus, okay? There was a story once of these old uh, hunters in Southeast Asia that would hunt monkeys. Okay, I'm sorry if you love monkeys, but this is just what happened, okay? And what they would do is they designed these traps that kind of looked like vases, okay? And the vases were really long at the bottom, and then as they get towards the top, they're more narrow, okay? 
and they would fill it with food that monkeys liked at the bottom, and monkeys would, you know, stroll up, however monkeys stroll up, and they would reach their hand in, and their hand would be able to fit like this. And they would fit in, they would grab the food, but all of a sudden now they have a fist, and when they go to pull up, they can't get their hand out anymore. And so the story goes, all the hunters had to do was literally casually walk up to the monkeys and hit them in the back of the head with a club, and they would die, and then they could take them. Because the monkeys refused to let go of the food that was in the vase. Okay? They were so convinced that the food in the vase was going to make them happy or full or whatever it was that they weren't letting go of it. There's nothing, literally death could not prevent me from letting go of this food. But what would cause the monkey to let go of their food? I think if they looked up and they saw the most beautiful banana tree they've ever seen in their life. Just endless bananas like it just every time they pull one it just grows right back like they just see it they see other monkeys enjoying it right all of a sudden what do i care about these little crumb foods in this vase it's hard to get out anyway i'm just gonna let it go pull out my hand and i'm gonna go eat all the bananas right what it takes to have victory over your sin is to realize that there's something better and the thing that is better is a person and it's jesus once we really believe that Christ is better than our sin, then we're willing to let go of our sin. But until we don't, until we believe that our sin is on par or even better than Jesus, we're always going to struggle to fight our sin. But the way that we find out, the Lord says, taste and see that the Lord is good in Psalm 34. Draw near to Him. Confess your sin. Abide in Him. See how He really is the fountain of living water. And once you get a taste of the fountain of living water, you're not going to want, you're not as easily want to go back to the cistern, right? Just think about it like this. Don't tell Pastor Gary I said this because he loves White Castle, but White Castle is disgusting. Okay, I'm sorry if you like White Castle. But if all you've ever had your whole life is White Castle, and then all of a sudden someone introduces you to a steakhouse, right? And you just get the fattest steak and the potatoes and the sides and everything. It's just delicious. But all I've ever had is White Castle, okay? What's going to convince me to leave White Castle and go try the steak? Not, not much. If you've only had White Castle, it's your favorite food ever. It is really gross, you're right. Uh, I'll tell your grandpa that. And it's disgusting. But what it would take for me to leave is I would have to be at least convinced or it piqued my interest, and someone would have to show me and convince me that it's worth taking a shot to go try the other place. And then what happens once I go and try the steak? I'll be like, White Castle is terrible, okay? Who fed this to me? Like, why have I been eating this my whole life, right? So then you start eating the steak, and it's good, and it's delicious, but then one day you drive by White Castle, and it's just calling your name, okay? Like, you just have to go stop in. It's been a while. So you go, and you stop in, and you grab the White Castle, all of a sudden it doesn't take, taste as good as it used to. And the reason it doesn't taste as good as it used to is because you've had the real thing. You've had something that actually sustains you and has flavor and doesn't make you sit in the bathroom for four hours afterwards, okay? And you're like, why would I go back? Well, it's like, that was a mistake. I need to go back to the better food. That's what Jesus is. Our sin is White Castle. You can tell Pastor Gary, okay? And Jesus is a steak, all right? What a weird analogy. Um, but we need to let go. We can't keep going back though, right? We, we got to realize that Jesus is, is better. And then the last verse is 2 Corinthians 3.10. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. 
the only way to overcome a bad desire is to push it out with a good one, right? We can't just try to stop sinning. It won't work. We need to replace our sin with what we're looking for. If we're looking for pleasure, we need to find it in Christ, the one who says he is pleasure and is joy. If we're looking for comfort from people or approval from people, why would we do that? We know they're going to let us down. Why? Because they're sinful, just like me, right? It's like, I need to go to the one who will never let me down to find approval, right? We can find everything we're looking for from sin in Christ. And when we start to believe that, that's when we start to have real victory over our sin. Thank you for listening to the Building Laborers podcast. If this content has blessed you in any way, please like, follow, and leave a review on whatever platform you listen on. 